0: Merry Christmas. It's still Christmas. This is the second Sunday of Christmas. This week is also the week of the feast of the Epiphany on Thursday, January 6th. That'll start the season of Epiphany. We move into a new season next Sunday. That word Epiphany that we're going to be celebrating today means literally means revelation. It's the story of the revealing of Jesus as the Messiah to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are those who are not Jewish. And our scriptures today point to this revealing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah for the entire world. This liturgical year we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, so I don't think at all, for the rest of the church year we'll be reading from the book of Matthew, so I'll talk a little bit about Matthew today. There's good news and bad news in Matthew. First, Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, that's the good news. Second, Jesus is also the Messiah for the Gentiles, and that's the bad news. You'll have to share him. On the one hand, Matthew is speaking to the Jewish people about their prophecies and desires for a Messiah, telling them that their long national nightmare is over, telling them that they've been vindicated, all the struggle, all the pain was worth it. The Messiah is here, and on the other, Matthew is saying that this Messiah is not just yours, but belongs to the whole world. And we start to see this almost immediately in Matthew. Matthew, if you remember, opens up with that boring genealogy of Jesus, right? Let me read you these stirring opening words. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. We're third of the way through. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah, and Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of deportation to Babylon. That's at two thirds. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Elachim, and Elechayim the father of Azor, and Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Not exactly a exciting introduction. But actually, there's some pretty exciting stuff in there. Unless you're really used to reading Jewish genealogies, you might not notice something really interesting and unusual. Now, as far as I know, the only example in Scripture of this. But women's names are mentioned in this genealogy. Four women, five counting Mary. Now, usually, genealogies only focus on the father to the son line. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, and so on. But here we have women mentioned as well. Mothers are mentioned. And I suspect any first century Jewish reader would immediately notice this as unusual and they'd think it was odd. But it gets even odder. Those first century readers familiar with their own Hebrew story would pick up pretty quickly on what is odd. What is odd? Well, two things. First, each of these women mentioned by name is connected to a sexual scandal of one sort or another. One is a former prostitute, two are victims of rape, and one, Ruth, figures in a rather seductive story, pun intended, in which her boyfriend never does quite know exactly what happened, but figures he better marry her anyway. And right after this list of women involved in sexual scandals, what do we read? Immediately after this boring list, Joseph finds out his girlfriend is pregnant, and he knows he hasn't been sleeping with her. Wow, it's not so boring after all, is it? Matthew has certainly gotten his readers' attention. But at the same time, Matthew is also pointing out something else about these four women. They're all Gentile women, except, of course, for Mary at the end. None of the four are Jewish women. All have had to convert to Judaism because, as you may know, Jewish heritage is passed along through the mother's line. All have to have brought themselves under Abraham's covenant. All have to have brought themselves into accordance with the law. And all looked forward to the one coming who will now be their Messiah. And Matthew is pointing out that these Gentile women have received their Messiah in Jesus. And he's not yet done. There's the birth of Jesus, which Matthew only mentions in passing, the birth itself, not worth dwelling on for Matthew. And then the first people Matthew mentions coming to see Jesus are who? Gentiles. Non-Jewish people coming to see Jesus. That's right at the start of Matthew. Right at the start of Matthew, those from other nations are coming to learn about him. And right at the end of Matthew, some of you may remember what Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. These are the bookends of Matthew, that Jesus is the Messiah for all people. Jesus fulfills the desires of the Hebrew people. He fulfills the prophecies of the Hebrew prophets. But he also fulfills the desires and even at least some prophecies of all people. As Matthew writes his gospel, the very first people to come to Jesus are these pagan Gentiles, these wise men. We call them the Magi. The Magi are selected by Matthew as the first people to come to Jesus, the first he wants us to think about. You may know how Luke chooses to tell his story. Luke selects the shepherds to come to worship baby Jesus because he wants wants us to focus on something else. But in both cases, Jesus draws to him the unexpected, whether working roughnecks or royal wise men. Jesus is drawing people we wouldn't expect to come to see the newborn king. But our reading today focuses on the wise men, the magi. Now the magi, the wise men, who are they? Well, they're the cultural elite of the Persian world. The Persian empire is long gone as a political unit, but we're we're talking about, about what's left of the Persian culture, which is centered around Babylon, Baghdad, the Roman world lies to the west of Judea; the Persian world to the east, and Jesus is born right on the border of these two cultures. It's an interesting way of thinking about Jesus' world. Well, the Magi's are the are the diplomats, the scientists, the poets, and the priests of their world, and one part of the world of science was what we would call astrology. They were convinced that the patterns of the night sky could tell about events on Earth. Now you might say, wait a second, what about all those warnings in Scripture about astrology? Well, clearly God isn't big on the idea. Many times in Scripture we're warned about looking to the stars, to guide us instead of the one who made the stars. But see here, notice here, God, God will use what's outside the law, what's forbidden by the law in fact, to reach those Gentiles who are outside the law. And these magi, these wise men, they see something in the sky they call a star, In Luke's gospel, God moves an empire to bring the holy family to Bethlehem. In Matthew, God moves the entire cosmos. He rearranges the stars. But these magi, these wise men, they see something in the sky they call a star. And it seems like everyone has a different opinion about what astronomical event they might be referring to. The planet Jupiter aligning with the star Regulus, both of those are associated with kingship in the constellation of Pisces, which was associated with the Jewish people. It's a common possibility. But they see something, okay. They see a star, a planet, a constellation, a comet, whatever, that catches their attention. And somehow this leads them to the conclusion that a great king has been born in Judea. Now, 80 years ago, 100 years ago, this drew a lot of scorn from people who tried to uh, attack the truthfulness of Scripture. It's unbelievable, they said that a bunch of scientists in Persian Babylon probably would even know much about this conquered Roman province of Judea, let alone manage to think that a star here or there in the sky would mean that a great king had been born in such a place, let alone make a journey to visit this baby king of this tiny little province. It's preposterous, it's absurd. And the Christian response at that time was a good one, and in fact I think a true one, that there had been a Jewish presence in Persia for centuries, we read about it in the Old Testament, and even the Old Testament states clearly that some of some Jewish men had become magi themselves. We know four of them by name, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who'd been taken to learn the, the secrets of Babylon. And that it's entirely feasible that they place their own prophetic literature into the Persian libraries. And Daniel's own writings foretell the coming of a great king to the Jewish people. And so therefore it isn't outlandish to suggest that these magi knew their own history which included great writers like Daniel, and that an interest in a Jewish Messiah would not be unusual. And now I do believe that's true. It makes an awful lot of sense. But one hardly hears that response made today, because today few would risk embarrassing themselves by commenting that it would be odd for the Magi to be interested in a Jewish king being born. Because as we've learned more about both the the, the, the ancient Near East and the Roman world, We've learned that from about 100 B.C. to about 100 A.D., we see all kinds of prophecies in all kinds of cultural settings that a great leader was coming out of Judea. It shows up all over the place in propaganda and mythology and political speeches and poetry. One Roman emperor used it as a claim that he should be the next Roman emperor, as Emperor Vespasian. Two historians who apparently didn't, didn't read each other's works, Tacitus and uh, Josephus, both record that Vespasian, when he destroys the temple in Jerusalem, he wrote back to Rome and said, said I fulfilled the prophecy. How does, this, how does this Roman general know about this? Tacitus writes, there had spread all over the Orient an old and established belief. He's writing this about an event that happened in the year 70. That's only 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus. He said it had been an old and established belief all over the Orient. There had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated for a man coming from Judea to rule the world. And Vespasian says, that's me. Both Tacitus and Josephus says the Jewish people always thought it was gonna be some Jewish guy, but no, it's it's the the guy who's gonna be the next emperor. He bases his claim on this, fulfilling this prophecy. Now, how did so many people across the Orient, Tacitus writes, make this same expectation? I, I don't know. How did the Gentiles receive this prophetic message through their own legends from God? I don't know, but it's interesting the prophecy in even the Old Testament that a star would be associated with the coming Jewish Messiah came from, well, guess who? Who prophesies that a star is going to point to the coming of the Jewish Messiah, a pagan Gentile, a guy named Balaam? This is all the way back in the book of Numbers. Balaam is a pagan Gentile magician. He's hired by another pagan Gentile king to put curses on the Jewish people. But every time Balaam opens his mouth, all he can do is bless the Hebrew people. It's kind of a funny story. He does this four times. And each time Balaam gets mad and says, I'm paying you good money to curse the... And, he, and Balaam says, I, 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 can't, I, I open up my mouth. I can't, I can't do it. I can't speak except what God is, is putting words into my mouth. And one of those blessings is that a star shall come forth out of Judah. Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob." and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Israel will do valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. The star of these pagan Gentile magi saw was prophesied by another pagan Gentile magician thousands of years before. God works in mysterious ways. It's amazing how scripture ties together. But back to the story, they see the star, they see the sign in the night sky, they come to conclude that the, a great king has been born in Judea, and they go to see him and honor him and worship him. Now Matthew never says they follow the star from Babylon to Jerusalem, but that they see the star, and it takes them there. For one thing, why would the star take them to Jerusalem? Jesus isn't there, he's in Bethlehem. And notice, after they reach Jerusalem, after they speak to Herod, they see the star again and are overjoyed. That means they hadn't seen it in a while. So here's our question. What leads the wise men to Jesus? What do they follow that takes them to Jesus? No, it's not the star. I mean, I know the song, We Three Kings, says so. I know. There probably aren't any Scottish Moors between Baghdad and Jerusalem either. What leads them to Jesus? It's not the star. It's scripture. You see, their natural reason, their own wisdom traditions, even their own prophets tell them they need a king, a powerful king. Somehow they even figure out that this king is born in Judea and say they do what makes sense. They go to the palace in Jerusalem. But Jesus isn't there. Instead, they're told what scripture tells them, that prophecy must be fulfilled and so the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. Look at this, they know there's a great king, they want to worship the king, but they don't find the king without scripture. And that points out some things to us about our human approaches to God. Our natural reason and even our wisdom traditions take us only so far. We must rely on what God reveals to us propositionally and then test that revelation, which they do. They make it to Bethlehem, they go to the house, they worship the newborn king, they give him gifts, The first gives him gold, the second gives him frankincense, and the third says, but wait, there's myrrh. (laughs) They give him gifts, and they go back home. And then what? Have you ever thought about what the wise men did for the rest of their lives? What did they do? I'd like to read a poem, a poem by uh, a poet, T.S. Eliot who uh, served on the committee that put together the renewed Coverdale Psalter that's in our prayer book. It's called The Journey of the Magi. It's being spoken by one of these wise men. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey, the ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted, we missed, the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling, and running away, and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out, and the lack of shelters, and the cities hostile, and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness. And three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you might say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down this, set down this, where we led all that way for birth or death. There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but I thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places these kingdoms but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods I shall be glad of another death I'm thinking about the wise men going home and somehow I just can't force myself to believe God abandons them there only 30 years later the news is going to come busting out of Jerusalem that Jesus is rose again And I hope these wise men heard the news. And I think, in fact, there's a clue in our reading that they really do come to meet Jesus in a true way. Not just bumping into him in the manger. What happens to the wise men after they meet and worship Jesus? Well, it's what happens to everyone who truly meets Jesus. They change their plans and go a different way. And I'm not pushing it too hard. I know know they're warned not to return to Herod, but the story is so rich I can't help but think that Matthew intends us to compare this turning to our own lives because the next character we meet in Matthew is our old friend John the Baptist back for another annual visit and his message just like last year and the year before is to repent, to turn away from our own plans and to follow a new and different way home to the Father. So I anticipate over the next several weeks, you'll hear several sermons on repentance. You'll be told and reminded that you need to repent, which is, when you think about it, kind of odd because you already know you need to repent. Isn't that odd how often we find that pattern in the Bible? In the Old Testament, the people come to Samuel and say, we're in trouble, what should we do? And Samuel says... I don't know, maybe maybe it's, you know, stop worshiping Baal. (laughs) It's just the first commandment. You know, give that a try. We just saw a few weeks ago the people come to John the Baptist and say, what shall we do? Father Alex preached on it. And what's John the Baptist say? Stop stealing stuff from people? You know you're not supposed to steal stuff from people. You know you're not supposed to worship Baal. You already know you're going to need to repent. But we have to be reminded every year, don't we? but I'd like to take this in a different direction. You're gonna be hearing a lot about repentance and you should repent. But this week, our scripture readings point us to a different theme. Not only the expansion of Jesus' messiahship to the entire world, but they talk about rest. And isn't that a good theme for the second Sunday after Christmas? To rest in what God has accomplished, what he's done that prophecy that Balaam, that old pagan Gentile, put on the Hebrew people. He starts off that prophecy, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he, will he not r- fulfill it? Our scriptures, each of them today, say that God has fulfilled what he's promised that has already been accomplished. Even the call appointed for today, is in the past tense. He's restored human nature. Christ isn't in the process of going through a journey of restoring human nature. It's already been restored. The reading from Jeremiah opens up, for thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. The people are in captivity. But the Lord says, shout and be glad. Why? Why? He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd, a flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. The people are still in captivity, but God says, I've ransomed you and restored you already. God's already done it. Our reading from Ephesians mentions our predestination. That word causes some people to become uncomfortable. Paul intends it as a word of comfort. He doesn't tell us that so that we spend the rest of the afternoon worrying about God's will and my will and how the two relate to each other, but that it's a word of comfort. Knows that we're not destined, but predestined. Because how many times do we hear somebody's destined for something, but then a disaster happens and it doesn't come through? He was destined for greatness, but then God already knows where we were headed. Paul writes in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Now that completion will result in repentance. You're going to be hearing a lot about repentance and you need to listen. But this week, rest in God's grace. Rest in what God has already accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen.